A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this uh, episode, which is the next installment in our series of Great American Jewish Cities. So this one on a few cities in the South, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Memphis, Tennessee. So this has been generously sponsored by friends of Rabbi Scott Hoberman, in honor of his move to Charleston, South Carolina, and with wishes for great success in his role as rabbi in this historic community. It is also dedicated in memory of Pinchas ben Kalev. And I want to start off with a story um, that I had with a very prominent and famous rabbi of another southern uh, city, Rabbi Emanuel Feldman. May he live and be well, who was formerly the rabbi in Atlanta for many years, um, which hopefully we'll get to in another opportunity. So I was once uh, talking to him and came up about Jewish communities in in, uh, different areas in the United States, and he told me that if a city has a baseball team, then it is a significant city and it's on the map and there's probably a prominent Jewish community there as well. So today we're actually going to talk about a few Jewish communities that are in cities that do not have a baseball team, and yet they still, uh, we'll see, have a very important place in Jewish history. So a few years ago, I was uh, someone gave me a ride, and he he had a very southern drawl, and I asked him where he's from, so he tells me Richmond, Virginia. So, you know, someone's giving me a ride. I try to butter him up and get on his good side. So I said, oh, so you're from the capital. So he lit up. Literally, his eyes lit up. It was the most exciting. It was the perfect thing to say to him. So later on in the conversation, when he referred to the Civil War as the War of Northern Aggression, so I started to get a bit into the mindset and to the culture and the identity of the American, the great American South, which is why I originally called it Richmond, the capital. So, so, uh, that, you know, that, that, that the Jewish communities, uh, absorb that as well. Charleston, in many ways, epitomizes the South. And this foray into the South is going to focus first on Charleston. We're then going to move to nearby Savannah, Georgia. And if hopefully at, at the end, we'll have time for a few minutes of Memphis as well. 
Um, so Charleston is is in the city itself is a, is an old uh, old city from colonial times, named after Charlestown. It was named after King Charles of England. Charles II, of course, was restored to the British crown after the British Civil War and. In the, in the 1640s, so then Oliver Cromwell comes to the to power in England, and then there's the restoration of the British crown, and, and following that, this colony of uh, uh, of South Carolina is set up. So it's named for the newly restored King of England, and it was the center of the slave trade for many years. That's what it became famous for, and it actually had a slave majority, and later on, an African American majority for many many years. Um, but on the other hand, it also had the largest and wealthiest Jewish community in the United States of America for many years, which we'll get to. Interestingly enough, if we go back to that colonial era, ironically, Catholics were forbidden residents in South, in Charleston until the American Revolution. As far as I know, it's either one of the only instances in history, perhaps the only instance in history, especially for that time period, that Jews were permitted residence in a certain place and Catholics were forbidden. Only Protestants and Jews. A very interesting scenario. So the Jews came from England and the Netherlands, the original settlement. They were all Sephardic, uh, Portuguese, originally Portuguese Jews. And, and uh, they come to this, to the South. Now in the antebellum South, what epitomized South Carolina, again, it's, uh, the home of John C. Calhoun, uh, the who, in a certain sense, he he he, not only he was he, he lived the South identity, but in a certain ways he he developed uh, the strong Southern identity of states' rights, of Southern honor, and uh, people like John Calhoun, John C. Calhoun, were um, were major players in the 19th century of developing what was to lead to the almost inevitable. What the Civil War. So South Carolina is the first state to secede, um, to create the Confederacy. The Civil War begins in Charleston when on April 12, 1861, the Confederates opened fire on Fort Sumter in the Charleston Harbor. So it, it, it all happens there. So when we uh, talk about the Jewish community, um, in this area, it's, uh, it's in that context. So, um, interesting, one of the first shuls in the United States, Congregation Kahal Kaidish Base Eloi Kim, uh, starts as an Orthodox Sephardic shul in synagogue in 1749. It's one of the oldest in America. And it's like I said, Spanish, Portuguese Jews who are coming from England and Holland. And it becomes reform only later. It's actually the first reform congregation in America. And that's, that, that itself is an interesting story, how the reform, how reform Judaism develops in the United States. There's a fellow by the name of Isaac Harvey, who broke off with a group from, from, from Beth, Beth Elohim, and, um, and, and he breaks off from the shul, meaning it's a secession. So Charleston has, a, has secession in the air from the Jewish community and later on the state itself. And they formed their own Reform Society of Israelites, uh, the first Reform congregation in the United States. And that lasts not that long, less than a decade. And by 18, 1833, they rejoined the Mother Shul. But the, at, during this time, the Reform was more radical than German Reform at the same time. 
First, it was simple stuff. Sephardic congregations in the United States. So the the uh, the you know, the announcements or anything in the in the shul was in Spanish. It was in a Jewish type of a Spanish, but it was in Spanish. So switching the announcements to English was already considered reform. Um, so I guess most shuls in America are a certain extent reformed today because most announcements are in English. But then they change the service to English. When they, and they do the, almost the entire service in English, which was also more than Germany at the time. And this Harbi even authored a new prayer book, which was a huge step and revolutionary for America at the time. And then they discard with the basic Jewish beliefs, no belief in Mashiach and our native country is our only Zion. But it, but like I said, it kind of peters out and they rejoin with the Beth Elohim Shul later on. However, the next step comes on when Gustavus Poznanski becomes the minister of the reverend, the minister of the shul. And he was Orthodox. He had a traditional upbringing. He comes from Poland, Germany, Poland, on the border over there in the area of Posen, Poznanski, right? And he arrives in the United States in 1832. And he's the Sheikhit and the Chazen in the Sheirith Israel shul in New York City, which is also a Spanish-Portuguese Synagogue. So he was an Ashkenazi from Poland, Germany, in a Spanish-Portuguese congregation, which that, that model he would continue in Charleston when he joins the Sephardic synagogue in 1836, and he's appointed there as the minister. He was not an ordained rabbi, uh, but he's appointed as a traditionalist to oppose change and reform. That's the reason that they appoint him, and the spokesman for Orthodoxy in the United States at the time, Isaac Leeser, he backs his appointment. But it only takes a couple of years. In 1840, he starts instituting reforms. And the traditionalists leave the shul and they start Sha'irith Israel, which eventually reunites with Beit Elohim in 1866. Um, but when they dedicate the new building of the shul in 1841, new, huge, beautiful building, his opening speech was, and I'm quoting here, this synagogue is our temple, this city is our Jerusalem, this happy land, our Palestine, and as our fathers defended with their lives that temple, that city, and that land, so will their sons defend this temple, this city, and this land. America is our Zion, and Washington our Jerusalem. And of course, reforms followed. No belief in the Mashiach, no second-day Yantif, English service, no Haftarahs. And he says, this Gustavus Poznanski says, there's no stopping reform in this enlightened age. There's tensions within the congregation between reformers and traditionalists. He eventually resigns in 1850, moves back to New York City, but he stays in touch and visited till his passing in 1876. Interestingly enough, his son was killed as a Confederate soldier on the battlefields during the Civil War when he lived up in New York. And we always hear and read about in the history books about how families were divided during the Civil War. So this is a great example also about a family divided. Um, what's interesting about the struggle about tradition and reform in the Charleston case is that it seems to have been a very isolated case. It developed independently of the German Reform Judaism at the same time. That was happening across the Atlantic. And also seemingly had no bearing on the wider developing Reform Judaism in the United States, which was mainly done by German immigrant, German Reform uh, uh, rabbis later on. So this was kind of like this own story that, that developed on its own, at the same time that it was happening in Germany and before it happened in the United States. So it's a very interesting story. So the, until, until eight, the 1830s, the largest Jewish community in the United States was Charleston, South Carolina. 
Um, the economy was booming there. Um, it was a wealthy Sephardic uh, Jewish community. Again, you're talking about uh, before the German Jewish immigration. So there were only, you know, less than 5,000 Jews in the whole America. So about 2,000 of them lived in Charleston. So it was a very significant uh, Jewish community in America at the time. Then it dropped. And then by the turn of the century, by the turn of the 20th century, it had fewer Jews in Charleston than in 1816. So what exactly happened? The changing economy, um, the post-Civil War South, also the prominence of the German Jewish immigrants and the less the prominence of the old Sephardic Jewish community. By now, the German Jewish community had become dominant. And after the 1880s, of course, the new immigration of, uh, of the um, Eastern European Jews became dominant. So the the Jewish community in uh, in Charleston lost a bit of, of its prestige. So, interesting, one of the families in uh, in Charleston history was the Cardozo family, which was a Sephardic uh, Jewish family. There was a fellow by the name of Isaac Nunez Cardozo who moved from New York to Charleston, was a patriot during, this, during the Revolutionary War. Um, he had a brother, David, Cardozo, Nunez Cardozo, who moved there also. Uh, David's son, interestingly enough, was an economist who was, uh, who was in Charleston till the Civil War. But this Isaac Nunez, he actually married a former slave, and they had several children, and these children went on, who were half Jewish and half, half from a former slave, an African-American, they became very prominent politicians in the latter part of the 19th century. Um, these Cardozo, they went by the name Cardozo. That was their father's name. Now, the, 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 uh, Orthodox shul, we talked about the reform, the Orthodox shul in, um, Charleston was the Brith Shalom Beth Israel. It still exists. It's still a prominent and important, uh, Orthodox shul down in the South. It started in the early 1850s. In 1854, it really became active. And it's, it was the first Ashkenazi Orthodox shul and the oldest in the South and might be the oldest continuous Orthodox Ashkenazi shul in the United States, which I guess is a record. And it was not German Jewish immigrants who were coming at the time who started it, but actually Polish and Lithuanian immigrants. And we know that the Eastern European Jews only arrived in the 1880s. They only arrived in large droves in the 1880s. But in fact, in the 1850s, there were some of them, and they were the ones who established uh, the shul. So they buy land for a cemetery, and actually some Confederate soldiers who were members of the shul are buried there, who were killed in battle, are buried there in this cemetery. They supported the Southern cause during the Civil War, like, like all the Jews in Charleston, some of whom were even slave owners. And uh, they were the only shul to stay open during the Civil War in Charleston, even though the city was basically a war zone. The shul even was able to provide matzah and kosher meat to its members during the war, even during the blockade and the bad economy and the, the battles going on. Originally, the shul was called Brith Shalom. And uh, there was another Orthodox shul that opened from the new immigrants at the end of the century that was called Beth Israel. What happens is, as is want to happen in uh, Jewish communities throughout history, and in 1947, a... Uh, they, uh, there was a breakaway from Beth Shalom to found a conservative synagogue. So in light of that, the two Orthodox synagogues merged in 1954 on the centennial celebration of the Beth Shalom, and therefore it's Beth Shalom, Beth Israel. That's the Orthodox shul. And if we move it, we mentioned the Civil War and the effect that it had on Jews in the South. 
So if we move a bit out of Charleston for a minute, the one of the the most incredible stories in American Jewish history took place during the Civil War and it affected the Jews of the South of uh, General Ulysses S. Grant and his expulsion order of Jews from during the Civil War. On December 17, 1862, there was expulsion order, General's Order Number 11, uh, infamous order, Jews as a class, uh, meaning irrespective of who they were. His issue was with cotton speculators, but he just decided that Jews are all speculators and trade on the black market, so he's defeating the economic boycott of the South, and this was the most sweeping anti-Jewish legislation in American history. You have to understand in the years before the Civil War, like I mentioned, the influx of German Jews raised the amount of Jews in the United States in 1825 from 5,000 to 250,000 by the time the Civil War broke out. It's a huge influx. Um, and that brought anti-Semitism, especially in the North. Um, so he called the Jews, I quote, a class violating every regulation of trade established by the Treasury Department and also department orders. And then he gives them, in this order, he gives them 24 hours to get out, to leave. And it was hard to enforce this expulsion order during wartime, but some Jews were actually banished from their homes. Uh, amazing, uh, you know, story of American history. Most of them were not at all involved in the cotton trading or the black market. It's only because they were Jews. Some of them were actually even former Union soldiers. And this was on his way to Vicksburg. Uh, Grant was... With the Anaconda Plan was the Union uh, plan of uh, the Union strategy to choke the South into an economic death, to, into submission. So there was a naval blockade, but uh, Grant was sound, sent down the Mississippi River Valley, and at the Battle of Vicksburg, he was able to um, defeat the Confederates and um, and and have them split the Confederacy essentially. So the black marketeers were ruining the plan because they were continuing to buy cotton. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and there was commerce going on, uh, between the North and the South, even during the war. He happened to have also some personal animosity to Jews. But, uh, when Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln heard about it, he revokes the, uh, General's Order Number 11 expulsion order for the Jews. And, uh, you know, he was quite horrified by it. Uh, you know, the country of equal rights, this should happen. And uh, Grant himself spent the rest of his life and career trying to atone for it. He said it was a real mistake, and he hired Jews into his administration when he became president, and he spent a lot of his presidency protesting anti-Semitism in Romania and in the Russian Empire, but the public never forgot it, and he, uh, it kind of haunted him for the rest of his life. Nearby in Charleston, we have the uh, ancient Jewish community, uh, also from colonial times of Savannah, Georgia. Congregation Mikveh Israel, again, Sephardic Jews from England, come in 1735. Uh, originally, again, it was, originally it was an Orthodox shul. Um, and the original settlers came from the, the famous Bevis Mark Synagogue in London, where a century later, uh, Moses Montefiore was later to be a member of that uh, synagogue until today. It's a prominent synagogue in London. And this, this synagogue finances the journey for their fellow members who are settlers. And they even took a Sefer Tyra from the shul with them, which is still in the shul today in Savannah. So one of the prominent early members of, the, of those times was actually an Ashkenazic Jew, Benjamin Sheftel, who was one of the early families there. And he remained Orthodox. He was an observant Jew. He even ordered tefillin for his son Mordechai 
well, for his bar mitzvah, he ordered them from England, and he was very nervous when they didn't come on time. He was nervous that they were caught on the high seas, and I guess if the pirates of those days were you know, stealing Spanish treasure, so that maybe they would go after Tefillin as well, but his Tefillin did make it, and Mordechai Sheftel was also an observant Jew, and he was even a colonel, and the highest-ranking Jewish officer in the colonial army. To bear in mind that at the time, in Europe, Jews were not allowed to serve in the army. That would only start in the 1800s in the Austrian army, and later on in the Russian army. And they were definitely not allowed to be officers till the 20th century and, and sometimes even beyond. So for a Jew, again, to signify how America was different at the time, about how a Jew, was an observant Jew, was able to be not just uh, serve in the army, during the Revolutionary War, but actually to become an officer and to reach the uh, rank of colonel was uh, an impressive uh, accomplishment. He was a very wealthy, this uh, Mordechai Sheftel, and a prominent member of the community, one of the founders of Mikveh Israel, and several subsequent generations of the Sheftels were leaders in the community. It was actually the first shul to receive a pres- uh, letter from President George Washington. And in the 1870s, this, uh, this, this uh, Mikveh Israel started to shift towards reform. However, in 1855, Savannah Jewry is going to be changed forever when the Garfunkel brothers arrive and they immigrate for, to the United States from Zhezhov in Polish, and the, the Jews called it Reisha in Galicia. They come from Galicia and Reisha is, I mean, we go to Reisha all the time when we tour Poland, it's next to Lezhensk. So you're talking about, you know, half a century, a little more than half a century after the Rebbe of Milech of Lezhensk passes away, these these Yidin from Raisha come from in the middle of Galicia, they come to Savannah. I mean, the contrast must have been so drastic, it's, it's beyond belief. And it's before the Civil War. It's 1855. So you have the two brothers. One of them is B.M. Garfunkel, Baruch Mordechai Garfunkel. And he was the son-in-law of Avram Ash, who was in the base of Medrash HaGadol in New York. And his brother Moses Garfunkel was the son-in-law of Avram Yitzchak Traeger, Avram Isaac Traeger, a, a Vilna immigrant who, who spent some time as a fundraiser for the students, the community, the Prushim, the students of the Vilna Gain who had immigrated to Eretz Yisrael. So he was working on that in, when he lived in New York. And Avram Isaac Traeger lived till the age of 104, dying in New York, uh, where he was very well-known character. He was a big Talmud Chacham. And, uh, and they were, and these two Michutanim, who both their kids married Garfunkels, so the Traegers and the Ashes, they went into the hoop skirt business together. And they had branches in New York and Charleston and other cities. And in 1860, they moved, the Traegers moved down to Charleston. And uh, soon after, they're in a different country because the city secedes from the Union. And uh, like I said, they attack Fort Sumter and the Civil War, uh, is initiated. And, um, and, uh, and and they're 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 down in the south. So like uh, at in Charleston, right? It's before they get to Savannah. So the um, the uh, the uh, actually he was a slave owner, and but the his slaves, citing the rare humane treatment that they received under him, refused to leave him even after emancipation. So that was one Traeger, but there was another Traeger who was a spy for the Union Army during the Civil War. That was Louis Traeger. And he did a lot of business during the war, and he crossed the border several times back and forth. And he uh, relayed the information to the Union. He submitted a report. Now, this 
Louis Traeger was born in Vilna, had only arrived in the United States a couple of years before, and he's already submitting reports in English about, from memory, the things that he had seen, Confederate army formations and stuff like that. It's absolutely incredible, but it's actually a real story. And he submitted this report. And of all people who was very into the report, Ulysses S. Grant, the Union General, he said, you have to listen to this report. This Traeger's a good guy. He's a good spy. He's giving us good information about where the Confederate uh, battalions are and the army formations are. So, in any event, during the Civil War, um, they moved to Savannah. The Garfunkels moved to Savannah. And the, fam- the Garfunkel family they become mainstays of the Savannah Jewish community until today. One of their sons, uh, Charles, who was Kalev Garfinkel, became a police chief, a police commissioner in Savannah. And Abe Garfunkel, another son, becomes the deputy mayor of Savannah. In fact, there's an amazing story that, uh, that is printed in one of the Pesach Kron books. And it's actually a true story. Um, Benjamin Garfunkel, the next generation of Garfunkels, he was an Air Force captain during World War II. And he's in Seattle, in an army base in Seattle, before he's shipped overseas to the, to the Pacific Theater. But he's there during Shavuos, and he asks for, uh, for, you know, to leave the base, and he's Shavuos, he spends with the Jewish community in Seattle, and he's hosted by the famous Ganauer family, who we discussed in our, in our Seattle podcast. And he goes for Kiddush, Shavuos morning, after being up all night by an elderly European Jew, and he asked him where he's from. He shows up in an Air Force uniform. So this guy asked him where he's from. He said, I'm from Savannah. So this elderly European Jew lights up and he says, you're from Savannah? When I came as a young immigrant to New York, I tried my luck peddling pots and pans in Savannah, but I didn't have a license. And there was a lot of anti-immigrant uh, uh, ferment there and there was anti-Semitism and I was arrested. And the police officers looked all tough and I was very scared. Little kid, I was an immigrant. And the chief of police happened to be a Jew. And this chief of police said, I'll take care of you. And the chief of police gave me a license. So I like Jews from Savannah. What a coincidence that you're here. This, this, you're a captain in the Air Force. So this Benjamin Garfunkel says, I want to tell you something. That police chief was my father. So the Garfunkels are now six generations of Orthodox Jews in, C- in Savannah. And, um, and uh, still going, still going strong. Orthodoxy in general has uh, remained strong in Savannah. The, even the less traditional uh, b- ones belong to the Orthodox shul, B'nai B'rith Jacob, who actually had some prominent rabbis, which I'll get to in a second. And there's a lot of a Jewish infrastructure there, a shul, a nursing home, a day school, uh, a grocery with a kosher section, and they're all in the same area. It's a nice Heimish Jewish neighbor. One of the rabbis of Jewish Savannah was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Mordechai Hirschbrum. He was the Rav in Savannah um, in the 1920s. He was a younger cousin of the more famous Rabbi Princhas Hirschsprung, who was the chief rabbi in Montreal. And he was also a genius. He also came from Galicia. His father, Abzev Wolf, was a great Talmud Chacham, who, who was a rabbi in Galicia. And, and, uh, and, he, and this Rabbi Mordechai Hirschsprung studied in, in yeshivas in Europe. And, um, and, and by his grandfather, his grandfather was the Ashnitzer Rav in Poland, the Rav Ram Yosef Galantner, and who wrote some important sfarim, which are studied till this day. And so this Rav Mordechai Hirschsprung arrives as an immigrant to the United States. He's one of the first students at Ritz, Rav Yitzchak Hanan in New York. And uh, he gave shiurim, he had a weekly mishmar, and, uh, and, uh, and then he marries, he m- marries a, 
a, the daughter of Rabbi Yochum Chanoich Elfenbein, who was also a prominent Talmud Chacham at that point, he received smicha from Rabbi Moshe's and Margolis, known as the Ramaz, Rabbi Ram Yafen, and other great uh, prominent rabbis, and he becomes the rabbi, uh, and and uh, and uh, he was the rabbi, like I said, in Georgia and other places uh, um, uh, in, uh, in 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 the United States. One, uh, another prominent rabbi in, down in Savannah was a Ravram Yitzchak Rosenberg, who whose father we mentioned in the Montreal episode, Rav Yudel Rosenberg, and his father-in-law um, was Rav Shmuel Avram Rabinovich, who was known as the Brownsville Rebbe, the Mezhebish Brownsville Rebbe, and he was the he led Bnei B'rith Jacob the Shul in Savannah for over forty years. He was the rabbi there. He's worked very well with the youth. He started the Southern Chapter of NCSY. He influenced many in the community. Another prominent place in Savannah, which I always like to talk about when I talk about places, is the cemetery. And the Bonaventure Cemetery is um, it's a, a famous cemetery, but the Jewish section of the cemetery, Rabbi Rosenberg is, of course, buried there, some of the Garfunkel families. But one of the interesting things about the cemetery is the reinterment of ashes, uh, Holocaust ashes, of, of uh, people, Jews, who were killed... Um, Martyrs, there's no, you know, no burial. There's, it's just ashes from, and this particular one is from the, uh, Hanover Alham concentration camp in Germany. And, um, and, and the survivor brought along some family members that were killed there in this concentration camp. And he took some of the ashes and brings it to Savannah, Georgia, where they're buried. And it's interesting in that context, in general, the idea of bringing ashes along and there's survivors who did it. There's actually in the cemetery in Muncie that there's ashes from Chelmno, a death camp in Poland, near Lodz. Um, in fact, that's one of the first things that happened at Yad Vashem. When Yad Vashem was opened as a research institute in 1953, so there was survivors who came to Yad Vashem with ashes and they said, you're, you're the Holocaust Memorial. They said, hey, we're a research institute. There was no museum yet. There was no memorial yet. They said, yeah, but we have no other place to bring it. We brought these ashes with us from Europe. And there's, it's an interesting phenomenon that uh, with no tangible way to hold on to a memory, no matseva, no gravesite, very tragic situation, that there were survivors who brought ashes with them to their new homes and then buried them in the Jewish cemeteries there. And um, you know, Yad Vashem did the same, and it's a whole, whole monument there, buried and whatever. But here it's in a, you know, a Jewish cemetery with a monument to... Uh, the martyrs of the Kedoshim of the Holocaust. Um, if we move on to Memphis, right, a few minutes of Memphis in, um, another fascinating, uh, it's not, not exactly nearby, but it's in the south, so it's all the same. And you have uh, some very prominent rabbinical personalities. Of course, Reb Natta Greenblatt is still alive. Most of the other ones have passed on. But um, it's an interesting story. Um, there's some ancient shuls there, which I'll try to get to um, in a couple of minutes. The Baron Hirsch uh, Synagogue, which is a huge and prominent shul. There's the Anshe Sfard uh, Synagogue, which is a, another shul. There's, of course, the Yeshiva, which we'll try to talk about a little bit. In recent years, there's Young Israel as well. Um, so there's a bunch of Orthodox shuls. And, um, and I mentioned Ramnata Greenblatt. So Ramnata Greenblatt was a fascinating personality, and may he live and be well. But um, just in the context of Memphis, I'm not going to get into a whole 
Reb Nata Greenblatt's stories, because then I would have have to have a, a week of podcasts to tell all the stories about him. But just in the context of Memphis, he arrives there in 1948. He needed a job. He was a 23-year-old. He was single. And he wanted to go to a place where he can make an impact. And the, there was a uh, job opening of an assistant rabbi. So he became the assistant rabbi there, which didn't last very long. He was fired pretty quickly, a little outspoken. Um, he still is. And and a few years later, his rabbi, Rabbi Feinstein, told him that uh, his that Rabnata's nephew, who had arrived from Yerushalayim, Rabbi Ephraim Greenblatt, was also looking for a job. Um, so a few years later, already the early 50s, and, and Ramesha asked Rabnata, do you have any, is there any jobs available down there uh, for, uh, for your nephew? So he said, yeah, there's, there's a, you know, there's, a, there's a job opening as well. There, you know, Ramnata had been involved in opening the day school there. Um, in fact, in fact, after he had lost his job as an assistant rabbi, he decided to open a day school. And he opened it and he went recruiting. He went literally knocking on doors and he got 23 kids, which was an unheard of accomplishment in the, talking about in the late 1940s in Memphis. Um, he, he decided he's not charging tuition. He had an incredible group of Balabatim led by Sam Margolin, who was a wealthy lawyer who backed him up and they fundraised and they funded it and he hired a staff. And then he removed himself, Rabnata removed himself. He was less involved. After a couple of years, he got it off ground. Eventually, they opened the high school. And um, and he got uh, his his nephew a a uh, third-grade Rebbe. He became the third-grade Rebbe and the Shaykhit. So Rabbi Ephraim Greenblatt, the great Rivavais Ephraim, the great Paisik, uh, was well-known throughout the world. Many volumes of, of, of Psak and Halacha and Chuvis he was hired in Memphis to be the third grade rabbi, to be the shaykhid. He was also the balkaire at the Anshe Sfard Shul. And he gave bar mitzvah lessons. He had four jobs in, in, uh, in Memphis. Um, so, um, Reb Nata Greenblatt, excuse me, eventually marries one of the only eligible Shemer Shabbos girls in, in, uh, in town, in Memphis. And they settle down there. Um, and Rabnat was involved in Kashrus, and of course later on in Gitten, and became legendary for that. Um, but in any event, the the there was very few Shemrei Shabbos. There's very few Shabbos observant Jews in Memphis, and through the day school, um, which in the other two communities that I mentioned was didn't really happen, and many other communities in the United States it didn't really happen. But the day school. Uh, produced, produced as is well known, the day school building, the investing in education and the youth, um, the, the day school uh, movement. And here it's one of the earliest day schools. Um, that, that's what produced, that's what built up the uh, Orthodox Jewish community. Um, now, what happens is, is that in the 1960s, of course, in Memphis is where Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. And there was a lot of rioting, and it was problematic for the Jewish community, and it was right near where the Baron Hirsch Synagogue was, a massive, huge, beautiful edifice. They eventually, And the Jewish community basically picked up in a very haste. They left. The Baron Hirsch building was sold to a church, and the building still exists, a huge, beautiful building. And, uh, and they moved to a new area of Memphis. There was uh, tension within the Orthodox community because Rav Hutner, Rav Yitzhak Hutner, he came down to Memphis once for a summer, for six weeks in the summer. Hutner himself came and was 
one of the first seed programs uh, of Torah Masorah, and he came with a bunch of Talmidim, and eventually Rav Hutner sends down uh, several of his Talmidim to permanently settle down there. One of them was Rav Meir Belsky, and Rav Meir Belsky came to be the sixth grade Rebbe in the, in the day school, and he established a following, and they eventually started, like I said, there was already a high school, and he starts a yeshiva, it was called the Yeshiva Gedaila of the, of the South, and that it was a base medrash, a post-high school yeshiva, and there was a bit of tension between uh, Romer Belsky and Ramnata Greenblatt, which I'm not going to get into, but um, but uh, that 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 also was a development uh, in the community. Now, interestingly enough, the the uh, in the early years, the 1930s. Memphis was host to Rabbi Khanan Wasserman. Rabbi Khanan Wasserman, during his travels in the United States, ended up in Memphis for a time. Um, he actually, there was a someone who he knew in Baranovich whose child was in Memphis, and he asked him as a personal favor to check out on his child. So I don't know if he went there for fundraising or if he went to visit this member of his community's son, but Rabbi Khanan was in Memphis. And in, in that context, Rabbi Greenblatt was host to several great Torah leaders who came down to visit Memphis. He hosted Ramesha Feinstein a couple of times when he came down to Memphis, Rabbi Schneer Cutler, Rabbi Chaim Pichas Scheinberg. So there was, Memphis had the privilege of hosting uh, some great, uh, great Torah leaders over, over its history. Um, one of the, one of the famous uh, people in Memphis, uh, not in the context of Jewish history, was of course Elvis Presley. Now it's interesting; he was Graceland later, but he grew up in Memphis, and uh, it which is there are a lot of connections between Elvis and the Jews. First of all, in a very technical halachic sense, it's likely that Elvis himself is Jewish. Um, his maternal great grandmother was. Jewish, and it's a maternal line that goes through his grandmother and his mother, who he was very famously very close with. His, uh, his first uh, Cadillac that he bought was pink, and he gave it as a present to his mother, and, and there's a lot of famous stories of him and the relationship that he had. But so in, in a technical sense, it's very likely that he was Jewish. He never obviously considered himself a Jew at all, but he did have an affinity for Jews. He donated money to the Memphis Hebrew Academy. He served as a Shabbos guy in his youth for the local Jewish families. He even occasionally wore a high necklace. And he had several Jewish friends who were members of the Memphis Mafia, including one who claimed to have taught him Kabbalistic uh, material. I don't want to know, even know what that was all about. But uh, Elvis was a bit of a spiritualist. And another was a, a fellow by the name of Alan Fortas, who was a nephew of the Supreme Court Justice um, um, uh, who who, uh, who lived in um, in Memphis? Abe Fortas, who was a a was during the Johnson during the Lyndon Johnson administration, was born to Lithuanian Jewish immigrant parents. He was Supreme Court Justice from Memphis, so so that uh, that you have another Jewish Memphis connection there. Now, interestingly, I mentioned there Nutter Greenblatt. So Rebetzin Nutter Greenblatt went to high school with Elvis. And she claims that she once lent him a dime and he never paid her back. So that's, um, that's a very important Jewish connection there. I mentioned a couple of shuls, famous prominent shuls in uh, the Memphis Jewish community, Orthodox shuls, the Baron Hirsch Synagogue, one of the largest Orthodox shuls. Officially, they say it is the largest, as membership goes, or one of the largest in America. It started during the Civil War, but only really got off the ground in the 1880s. 
and it was named for Baron Moritz de Hirsch in the uh, in the eighteen famous philanthropist in the eighteen nineties. But the other famous Orthodox shul there is Anshe Sfard Beth El Emeth Shul, which was a merger of a few Orthodox shuls that formed in the eighteen hundreds. And some of them were actually in reaction to Temple Israel, which was the original synagogue in in Memphis when they went reform, like we mentioned in other Jewish communities, and then the Orthodox broke off. Today, Anshe Svar, the most important thing that you need to know about the Anshe Svar is that they're known for their annual kosher barbecue competition, which they need to fit into the Memphis culture, but in a kosher way. One of the prominent rabbis in the Baron Herschel was Rabbi Fall Grossman, very prominent rabbi. He passed away only recently, very illustrious career. And he was the Rav in the Baron Hirsch for over 30 years. He was prominent in the RCA, in the Besden of America, in the OU, in the Religious Zionists of America, and many other organizations. He was a very, very active uh, rabbi. He started day schools in several of the towns that he was the, the Rav in. He actually grew up in Lakewood, New Jersey, before it was famous as Lakewood. And he was a Talmud of Rabbi Strolls of Gustman. Um, so he was a prominent Rav in, in Memphis. Um, going back to Ephraim Greenblatt, the Paisic, he was a very colorful, colorful Paisic. He, in his many multi-volumed Rivois Ephraim, so he has, a, his personality comes out. He writes occasionally, uh, I can't look up the safer now because it's under a huge pile of Sfarim on my desk, so I can't get to it. And he, Literally quoted everyone. He quotes everyone in the entire world, any contemporary, kind of like Rabovadi Yosef, even people who he would, who he would talk to in learning, regular, you know, simple people that he would be discussing halachic questions with in learning. He's quoting them in his sefer. And he was really always ahead of the game. He quoted uh, people who later became great, famous and big paiskim. He quoted them really, really early on in, in their career. Um, an interesting Memphis figure was a boy by the name of Aaron David Scheinberg. Aaron David Scheinberg grew up in Memphis, and he was one of the few American boys who went, and coming from Memphis in the 1920s, he goes to study in the Slabatki Yeshiva in Hebron, in Eretz Yisrael at the time, and he was one of the martyrs, one of the ones the, of the victims of the Hebron massacre. He was killed, unfortunately, in the 1929 riots. But while he was a Talmud in the yeshiva, he sent letters back home. And those letters exist. There's a whole file of letters to, to and from his family describing the yeshiva, describing the experience of this Memphian, you know, being exposed to the aristocracy of the Torah world in the Slavatki yeshiva in Hebron. It's fascinating. Uh, um, you know, it was an article in Tradition recently and, and, uh, um, of his experience in yeshiva. It's more about the history of the yeshiva, but uh, it's an incredible document because it's through the eyes of someone who grew up in Memphis and was killed when he was 23 years old. Um, another Memphi- Memphian figure was Rabbi Yaman Svi Walmark. Rabbi Yaman Svi Walmark was born in Lithuania. His father was a rabbi, and he escapes with his family to Shanghai. While he's in Shanghai during the war, he's tutored by the mere giant Rabbi Sholem Gottlieb, who was later in Beis Talmud, and the and Rabbi Yaman Svi Walmark used to describe that Rabbi Nachum Partsavich was a Shabbos guest at their house very often, and then when he comes to America, he studies in Chaim Berlin by Rabbi Kutner. He studies in Lakewood by Rabbi Aaron Cutler. And then in the 1950s, which is a very rare occurrence, he goes to the Mir near Shalayim, to Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz or Lazar Dolfinkel. So he really got it from all around. He comes back to America and becomes a Rebbe in the Yeshiva of Eastern Parkway. And Rabbi Hutner sends him then, again, one of those, like we said with Rabbi Mayor Belsky, so Rabbi Hutner sends down 
um, Rebbeinamin Tzvi Walmark to Memphis to become a Rebbe in the yeshiva where he remained for over a half a century, over 50 years. He's there. His wife was also a teacher there. By the way, Ephraim Greenblatt's wife was also a teacher in the, in the yeshiva there. So a lot of husband and wife uh, teachers in Memphis. And this Rebbeinamin Tzvi Walmark was very influential with Talmidim and the community. He would regularly host Jewish soldiers from the Millington Naval Base for Pesach where they would sleep in his house and um, and uh, participate with him over Pesach. So he's also a very special individual. So just to wrap it up, just several years ago, there was a yeshiva that opened in Memphis. For, it lasted for one year. as a yeshiva by Rabnata Greenblatt. A group of boys uh, came down, and the, and, the, and the yeshiva started. The uh, uh, yeshiva returned, rather. There used to be a yeshiva there many years ago. And the, and the, and it was there again. Or not too black when he was ninety years old. He was the, the thing that the thing that he was interested in is starting yeshiva. Not many ninety year olds can do that, but he definitely could. And interesting that the one who gave them the building um, to use for the yeshiva was a elderly Jew who grew up in Baranovich and remembered Rabbi Chanan Wasserman as a young boy. And he was survived the war by being a partisan and all kinds of amazing stories about how he survived and. And which is why he wanted to give to the yeshiva to to you know to build Torah, and uh, so he gave them a building. The yeshiva did not last long, but that's uh, an interesting postscript to Memphis Jewish history. So that's a little bit about Charleston, about Savannah, about Memphis. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish history sound bites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer dot com or through the website, yehudigeber.com. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.